Yo, this is Pastor Tito, and welcome to another episode of the Revolutionary Podcast. topic of hearing God's word is so important and it is a topic that man sells books like crazy because I really believe this is just me I really believe that not only is it a hard for people to understand God's voice but they battle so many different voices and one that we're going to tackle today is the voice of your guilty conscience how to tell the difference between that and demonic lies. We need to go back to the main idea that we've been talking about for over a month now, in that God's spoken word still speaks. God's spoken word still speaks today. And that is that voice, that is the anchor, the truth of God that we need. When we hear these voices, when it is, and when I say voices, I'm not talking about being now schizophrenic and whatnot, and, and that's, that's something else altogether, all right? I am talking about the voice that you know and many of you are familiar with, right? The one of your guilty conscience and just sometimes these extra stuff that's just like, wait, what is this? You know, what, what, what is going on? Like a, a lot of times, a lot of times when, well, this is actually one of the biggest reasons why so many uh, Christians um, struggle with their assurance of salvation. Because I really believe that a lot of it is because they're just not anchored as much in God's word. So they're not confident in who he is. But also, they're not... Sh- they're not, well, yeah, because of they're not confident in his word, um, they don't have that clear conscience. They, they live with a guilty one. They get saved, and then they still sin, and then they wonder, wait a minute, what's wrong with me? Did I do it right? Um, am, I, am I not? And then there's all of these things that just darkness just condemns us. And then what, what do we do with that? What do we do with those accusations? Because the reality is, guys, that those accusations, both our self-accusations and the external ones, demonic accusations against our relationship with God, those accusations disrupt worship. It disrupts our private worship, and it disrupts our public worship. And when I mean public worship, I'm not talking about when you get to church and do that. No, I'm talking about your living your life for the Lord out loud, right? This matters. In fact, we're going to look at the book of Acts, and we're going to continue our study of the book of Acts, and we're going to see how Paul's worship was interrupted, but yet he did not allow neither the interruption nor the accusation to disrupt his connection with God and how he lived for him. And so we're going to read part one of a complete story of Paul before Governor Felix. So last time I left you, we were uh, talking about how Paul had arrived back in Jerusalem and there was these rumors being spread that, you know, Paul was out there telling all the Jews to abandon their Jewish heritage, that this whole Jesus thing is completely different. 
and uh, and so they asked him to do a purification ritual with some of those people who were accusing him. And not only that, pay for it. So you can check that one out. Um, and so the thing is, is that at the end of that seven-day ritual, he was accused of bringing in Greeks, you know, like non-Jews, into the temple, which was a serious crime. Okay, if Jews did that or anybody did that, that was a death penalty on the spot. All right. And so as they grabbed him, as they tried to kill him, the a Roman soldier intervened by God's grace, rescued Paul, found out that there was going to be an accusation, not an accusation, an assassination attempt on him and sent him all the way to Governor Felix of Judea, of the nation. Okay. And he sent him under cover of night uh, with heavily armed security because there was just something. I was like, you know, the thing is that this commander also heard that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so there was so many questions going on. Wait a minute. Why are these Jews trying to kill this guy? And, and the fact that he's a Roman citizen. Is this legal? Is it okay? I mean, it was, it was so complicated that he had to send him to a higher court. And he sent him to Felix. And that's where... I'm going to pick up the story. So let's just read part of it. Next week, we're going to talk about the rest of the story. So today, we're going to look at Acts 24, verse 5. Five days later, now that's five days later since that uh, Roman soldier, Roman um, commander, sends Paul over to Felix. Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you, and you and your reforms are taking place for the benefit of the nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and in everywhere. Most excellent, Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges that we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. So, first off, man, you got to tip your hat to Tertullus. Got to tip your hat to the guy because this hired hitman attorney came in with very little prep and was able, all right, like a ninja, all right, like a wordsmith, like a good lawyer. Man, in such a small paragraph, lay down a ridiculous case. I mean, maybe some of you may have just kind of read it and passed it over. I know I've done too. But when you zoom in, I'm like, wait a minute, what is he saying? I mean, you got to just, again, tip your hat to, to A for effort, you know, because of uh, what he's doing. Now, let me just tell you the three things. So first off, there's, he brings three charges against Paul. Number one, it's sedition. He, we see this with the words that he uses, okay? Listen, lawyers, politicians, which tend to be lawyers, all right, they are very careful about their words, very. And when he uses the word and describes Paul as a plague and an agitator, 
in the, among the Jews in the Roman world, he is literally making a claim of sedition. Like Paul is out there rounding up all these Jews to rebel against Rome. Okay? That's what that charge is. To use the word is that plague and his agitator. He is claiming this is some kind of crazy revolutionary that is out here trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's a big charge. I mean, Rome doesn't play with that. So that's one crazy charge. The second crazy charge is sectarianism. All right. And this is where we get or this is why he uses the word ringleader. Notice he didn't say he's a ringleader of this sect of Jesus Christ, right? He uses the word Nazarenes, all right? You know, Jesus was from Nazareth, and so he's kind of implying this. So the thing is, sectarianism is when you are practicing a, a religion that is unauthorized, okay? Rome would allow, allow people and allow people groups and nations to uh, worship in their ancient traditions, if their religion predated Rome. So that's why the Jews were allowed to continue to worship uh, Yahweh and maintain their Jewish culture, even though they were under Roman occupation. But you were not allowed to practice a religion that was not authorized by Rome. So when he is calling him a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes, in essence, the claim is, he is starting a brand new religion. So not only is he being rebellious and he's a revolutionary, but he's also starting a brand new religion. Two strikes against Paul. All right. Two Roman strikes against Paul. Both of those, if found guilty, all right, would be bad news for Paul. But then he saved the best for last. And he says he tried to desecrate the temple. And before he did, we apprehended him. Now, that charge is one of sacrilege. See, the Jews, like I mentioned earlier, if anyone desecrated a temple, the Romans actually gave the Jews permission to kill people on the spot. All right? No trial, no jury, no need for Roman involvement. If you, if the Jews believed that you desecrated their temple, they can kill you on the spot, no questions asked. And so, in essence, that's what, remember, that was the claim. That's why, why Paul was arrested. That's why they were beating him to begin with. They were trying to kill him because of that rumor that some people spread. And so, in essence, with those two previous strikes, if those are bad enough, Felix, and by the way, Felix has been governor from 52 AD to 59, so he's aware of um, this law and stipulation. So not only, sir is he had these two strikes against Rome, but he has a big one against us Jews. So in essence, what Tertullius is arguing as his final statement, his closing argument is, this trial belongs in Jewish courts, all right? And we'll, by the way, we'll be doing you a favor because he's out there just kind of trying to rebel and mess things up, so let us deal with him, all right? Amazing. So that's what he wanted. He wanted um, this to go into Jewish Jewish jurisdiction. Um, listen, you, you have to also appreciate Luke now, the author. I mean, this just feels like an episode of uh, not Law and Order, but I, I guess it just feels like some episode of uh, a TV show because it is a high drama. It is just so good. All right. Super, super good. Now, what's ironic is um, the last statement, the last charge that he makes, which is supposed to be the big hitter, right? He's mic drop. Actually, Tertullus, as smart as he was, should have chose his words wisely. His uh, argument fell apart at the end. I'm going to show you why in a minute, because Paul actually pulls this apart. So let's look at what Paul says in response. 
Next week, we're going to talk about how Felix responds to everything. So when the governor motioned to uh, him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it has been no, uh, no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They, they didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing any disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges that they are now making against me. But I do admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I will always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts, offerings, and offerings to my people. While I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple, without a crowd and without an uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges, if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state that what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them, Today, I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Listen, if we had to tip our hat to Tertullus, man, we got to give Paul some props. Because this thing, and now this is Paul. Let me rephrase that even more. I mean, this is the Holy Spirit helping Paul to think clearly and to speak accurately. All right. I know Paul would say the same thing. You know, this is not I, but Christ lives in me. All right. But it's you just got to just give what the Holy Spirit is doing through Paul some props, man. It, because look at this. His response actually unravels and challenges all three of those charges that Tertullus brought up. First off, A.B. compared the two. Tertullus, very vague, right? Um, he's a ringleader. He's a plague. He's an agitator. Oh, and he tried to desecrate. Very vague. And here, Paul is bringing facts. Paul is saying details, right? I was 12 days here. I was doing this. I was doing that. I was, I was over here. I mean, I mean, he was bringing details. Now, his first one, when he says, listen, Felix, you could tell I haven't been here more than 12 days. That right there is an amazing statement because, remember, the charges are he, is, he came to Rome. He's coming to Rome to start a rebellion, all right, sedition. And he's only been or in Rome, or he's only not in Rome, excuse me. He's only been in Jerusalem for 12, um, for in Judea, Israel, for 12 days. But if you remember the verse, first verse that we started, he's been in Roman custody for five. And so he's saying, listen, I know that's cute and all, but uh, first off, I have been in Roman custody for five days. And the other seven days, I was in the temple during purification. I didn't have time to start a rebellion, even if I wanted to. So charge number one, bro, you got to throw that out, all right? That's, uh, that's not the case. And by the way, they didn't even bring any facts. How am I agitating? That's just hearsay, all right? That's just hearsay. The other one, the ringleader one, okay? He answered this one because, remember, they were claiming he's, uh, he is worshiping uh, an, auth an unauthorized religion. He says, listen, I'll admit to you. I worship the God of my ancestors, the Jews. 
and everything I believe, I believe everything that's in the law and the prophets. And they, I believe in this, but they call it a sect. But I believe the same things they do. I believe in the law and the prophets. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. In essence, he's arguing and saying that the Christian faith is not necessarily new. The Christian faith is actually what is true. All right, everything in, that is in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, it pointed to Christ. And so it is not necessarily a, a branch, you know, that we've um, started something completely brand new that, from square one. No, it is the true religion. It is the true Christianity is the true religion, true expression of those Jewish heritage. And so he's making the claim. I'm not doing anything new. I just I believe it to be true, though. And so that's the other charge gone. And then the last one. All right. The last one was genius. He said, listen, uh, even according to the thing, I was in the temple purifying myself. Look at the irony there. The other group is claiming he went there to desecrate, to defile the temple. And he's saying, no, man, I was there in the temple being purified. It was they who disrupted me. I wasn't having, I wasn't causing any disruption. Like if you want some agitators, they're calling me the agitator. No, these guys were the agitators and not even these guys because they weren't even there. So even these people, the charges that they're bringing against me is also hearsay because Tertullus said, we apprehended him. And he's saying, no, they weren't. The people who actually apprehended me aren't even here. These guys, if they want to talk about anything, the only thing that they were witnesses of was the one statement that I made in front of the Sanhedrin that got them all uppity. And, uh, and that was the other thing about, he kind of really pointed out uh, Tertullus, and he agreed with Tertullus. Oh, in a sense of the vagueness of it, but check this out. Tertullus said, he tried to desecrate it, but we stopped him before he did. So then did he commit a crime? Because it sounded like, uh, kind of, what kind of minority report situation is this? It sounded like you stopped him before he can commit a crime. So is he guilty of anything? I don't know, because he didn't do it. So even there, Tertullus is the one detail that he gave. All right, you can't, or you can't, uh, you can't believe it because he said we apprehended him, which we didn't, and uh, they said that he tried to desecrate it and he didn't. So that was an admission of non-guilt. So what case do we have here? You know, nothing. So oh, this is super cool when you just look at it this way. But all right, we're going to look at Felix's response next week. But there was a statement that Paul made that I really wanted to zoom in on, and especially in the context of what's happening. And it was the statement in which he said, which I believe it's verse 16, 24. I always strive to have a clear conscience towards God and Men, listen to that. I always strive to have a clear conscience before God and men. So, I mean, what's interesting is how can he have a clear conscience before even these men? These men are falsely accusing him. All right, they are mistreating him. They're lying to him. They were they were trying to beat him. They wanted him dead, and yet Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is not sinning against these men by being bitter, by being unforgiving. He has a clear conscience towards his accusers. He has a clear conscience towards people. And he has a clear conscience towards God. How? How is that even possible? Now, this is important, guys, because as we see here, what the enemy did for Paul is what the enemy wants to do to us. 
all right, where the enemy tried to disrupt Paul's worship and work, and they're trying to kill him. And listen, the kingdom of darkness will do everything possible to get Christians to disrupt their worship, because if they can disrupt our worship, meaning our conscience, our, our living for the Lord, if they can disrupt our worship, they will disrupt our work. And here, Paul is doing neither. Not only does he have a clear conscience, but he, he's putting in work here through the Holy Spirit and being a, a faithful witness. It's amazing. And so there's a couple of those things that I want to break down for us so that we understand how can we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, remain and have a clear conscience before God and men. Well, first off, let's look at the word conscience, okay? Our conscience is like uh, an alarm clock, all right? It's the thing inside of us, you know it, it's the thing inside of you that makes you feel uh, guilty, right? Am I doing the right thing? Um, And so you're kind of like before you're making a decision, right? If you know it's wrong, but before you do it, your conscience is going off, like saying, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, this ain't right, this ain't right, this ain't right, right? And then when you do, that guilty conscience kicks in. You shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done it. Not only is it kind of like an alarm clock, <clears throat> but it's almost like a course correction in your car. You know, like I, I kind of, I kind of, and I don't like those things where, you know, if you're kind of floating off to the side, uh, you know, it tells you, hey, psh, come back in, or it's telling you to break or actually breaks for you, which kind of comes in handy, but then it scares me at the same time, you know, what, what that works. Um, that's kind of like that as well. Like it's the Holy Spirit, the conscience in us is reacting, saying, stop, 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 or um, go back, go back, go back. Now, the thing is about our conscience is that our conscience has been corrupted. No one has a pure conscience. In fact, Paul talks about this in his letter to Titus, in Titus um, 1.15, and he speaks of the fact that we can have, our conscience can have impure impulses. Okay? Where does the impure impulses come from? It comes from the flesh. It comes from sin. And what it means about impure impulses is that sometimes our conscience lies to us. It deceives us. It is under the delusion of sin. And when our conscience tells you, hey, uh, sounds good, man. Go ahead. Uh, I know it, it, it could be a sin in God's eyes. But if our conscience is not put in check, you know, we will be misled by misinformation. That's what the impure impulses are talking about. And so we could be led into sin with a clear conscience. That's a problem. And the thing is, is that not only does our sin or not only does our conscience and our heart have um, impure impulses, but they are evil. And it actually can produce an evil conscience. This is what the uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says we can have an evil and develop an evil conscience that is so uh, corrupted that it's actually encouraging us to do the wrong thing and discouraging us from doing the right. And then it gets even worse. For Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 2 of his first letter, he says that it, there's possible that you can even have a seared conscience. Now, when you're talking about seared, it, it literally just, you know, I mean, you can't think in searing steak, right? But to sear something is to toughen it up. Really, another way of saying it is you can have a numb conscience. A numb conscience means that this is a scary, a scary place to be in which you are numb to the voice of God, the truth of God, the word of God. You're numb to the impulses of God. And all you are feel, and you're being led by. 
is your evil, sinful, wicked conscience. That's a scary place to be. That's a scary place to be. But so that, that course correction is something that we need to be able to address because the more we give into those evil impulses, the more numb we become. And so, again, this is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, as the Corinthian church did him dirty. And he wrote him a letter just saying, kind of letting him have it, but in a holy way. You know, he was like saying, listen, you hurt me, and this is, you're just wrong. And he did, he did nothing wrong in, in kind of pointing out how wrong they were. And then they became guilty. They felt that grief and they were like oh my gosh what did we do and so paul's second letter to the corinthians actually addresses this situation and he tells them in chapter 7 9 and 10 he says listen i now rejoice i'm not rejoice i don't rejoice because you guys grieved and you guys are now sorry for what you did for me no but i i rejoice because your grief led you to repentance like you recognized that you were wrong and you turned back to the lord like that's actually what i care more about for you were grieved as god willed listen to that God wills us to grieve? Oh, what's the will of God for my life? I want to know the will. I want to know the will of God for my life. Well, sometimes God's will is for you to grieve. We'll talk about that in a second. So you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to the salvation. I love this without regret. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. See, that grief that they're experiencing is of the conscience. And so godly grief is when God has you feel, all right? These are the pure impulses of your conscience that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. When they're saying, listen, you are wrong, you're out of bounds, Okay, like the alarm going off in the car telling you, hey, hey, come back, come back, come back, come back. Godly grief, he wants us to feel it when we're floating away. He wants us to feel it when we're drifting from him as a warning mechanism so that we can turn back to him. That's what godly grief does. And so when we see that and when we feel, you know, our sin grieves God because it separates us from him. It, it, we drift from him. It hurts us. It, he feels it. All right. And he wants us to feel it so we can turn back. And that's okay. That's a good thing. This is not like, you know, God's not, you know, wants us to have a, you know, big guilt trip, but he wants to feel it so we don't drift far. But worldly grief is different. Worldly grief is a grief that is led by impure impulses. This is when you know you sin against the Lord and you know it's a sin. And you listen to those impure impulses that we were talking about. This worldly grief is what I mentioned earlier. It's when you do the wrong thing, and then you start thinking thoughts like, he doesn't love you. you he doesn't, no, or better, like, you don't deserve God's love. If you're still sinning, huh, I, guess, I guess the blood of Jesus didn't work. Or if you're still sinning in this way, you didn't do it right. It's your fault. You are worthless. You are nothing. You're not even saved. Maybe you never can be saved. See, that's worldly grief actually takes you further away from God. It's lies. It's lies of impure impulses from our flesh and from the kingdom of darkness. And so this is why it's so important. The more you listen to worldly grief, the more numb you become. Okay? This is why, again, we see the whole, it produces death. It will produce a death in you, spiritual death. 
And so we have to be cautious of that. So what do we do? You know, what, what do we do with these accusations? And, and what is feeding those accusations? Again, worldly grief, let me say it this way, worldly grief is being fed by the kingdom of darkness. For Revelations chapter 12, verse 10 and 11 says that the devil stands before the Father accusing Christians day and night. You know, oh, the devil made me do it, or, you know, listen, 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 you're not, I look, I love you, God loves you, you're not that special, all right? The devil does not think that you are such high priority, all right, that he's going to take time out of his day to mess with you, all right? Scripture says we know where he is. Oh, where's the devil? We know where he is. He's standing before the Father, accusing Christians day and night, all right? The devil did not cause you to have a flat tire this morning, all right? That's not him. That was the nail in the road, all right? That's it. That's different. But the devil stands accusing us before God. What is he saying? Well, we don't know. But if he's accusing God, you know, maybe he's saying, Lord, these guys are, you can't forgive them. They're guilty. They are guilty. That's what the accusing is. So I don't know what he's saying, but he's saying these guys are guilty. They don't deserve heaven. They don't deserve salvation. You know it. They are guilty. And if you are a just and righteous God, you know, I don't know. But all we know, all we don't know what he's saying, but all we know is that he is accusing us before the Father. And so if that's what the devil does, then what do demons do? Well, demons just kind of use the same tactic. But instead of accusing us before the Father, they accuse us to our faces, you know, constantly reminding us of our sin of our unworthiness. God didn't do this for you. God didn't save you. These are the things, they just feed those impure impulses. So what can we do with this? How can we balance, like, how do we process all of this? And remember, this is our conscience, and Paul says he has a clear one. He has a clear one? Meaning he's not, like, bothered by these things? Like, what is that? How can you have a clear conscience? Well, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says this. The, the author is, is mentioning how he's talking to Jews and like saying, guys, you know how we, God told us to sacrifice animals and, and that the blood of animals would cover our sins for a year. And, and you know, it, it did and it didn't, right? It was just this like temporary thing that God was trying to do and show, but we believed it, right? And, and God was doing something through it. And so if that worked, Okay, for a time, and God used it. Then he asks this question in chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse us, listen to this, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? You know what dead works are? Sin. The thing that gives us guilty conscience. And he says that the blood of Jesus is actually able to clear and cleanse our consciences from our sinful dead works so that now we can live for the Lord. And remember, like we said in, in um, Paul says to the Corinthians, without regret. So it is possible for us to have a clear conscience before God. And this is why Hebrews 10.22, he later in the next chapter says, so let us draw near. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. So, Paul knew, what can cleanse my conscience? Only the blood of Jesus. When the author, uh, author of Hebrews says, 
draw near with a true heart. True means sincere. It means open. It means honest. Admit your sin. Admit your guilt. See, this isn't just you, oh, okay, well, I sinned, and okay, well, let me just forget about it. Let me, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what he's saying here. Okay. You are godly grief. Remember that, godly grief. You are supposed to grieve your sin. There's no gratitude for forgiveness if you don't first grieve. The gratitude that we experience of forgiveness is a result and follows after grieving your sin. That's why you can be grateful that God forgave you of your sin because you first grieved it. So we're supposed to mourn our sin, but then move towards our Savior. That's what Hebrews 10.22 is talking about. So that the blood of Christ can cleanse our hearts from an evil conscience. The blood of Jesus is able to do that. This is why Paul knew, I have a clear conscience before God, not because I've done anything wrong. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. Because technically, you know, all the accusations that they were saying to him, they were saying he's, he's doing all these bad things. Like saying, no, I haven't done anything bad. But Paul will admit at the same time and say, but I'm the chief, also the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. So what does that mean? When he says a clear conscience, he is talking about the fact that, listen, I know I am a guilty sinner, but I am confident in that my Lord wants and desires and has forgiven me of my sins because of his grace, not because of my goodness. And I have a clear conscience before the Lord. He knows my sin and he has handled it. And I trust in him and I lean on him. And he has washed me clean of shame and regret. Guys, that's huge. There's things that I've done that I regret. I wish I, I, wish I could undo it. But, but I, I feel like I, I can see what he's saying now in that when you are confident in Christ, you can have regrets, but it doesn't like weigh you down because the blood of Jesus has lifted that burden off of you. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, he, he starts chapter 8 saying, there is no condemnation in Christ. If you have, even when you sin post-salvation, there is no condemnation in Christ. You are growing in the Lord at that case. Now, we don't grow so grace, you know, we don't sin so grace abounds, no, but, but there's no condemnation in Christ, and there's no obligation to follow all these rules to prove yourself to him. And he finishes chapter 8 with saying, again, there's even no separation. Nothing can separate you. No action, no demon, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus when he's Lord of your life. And when he's forgiven you of your sins, nothing can. And this is why in the middle of all of that, he says in Romans 8.33-35, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the only one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or can distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? None of it can. So when he makes those sarcastic statements, right? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who can condemn us? No one. Because God, you're not telling anything that you're not telling God anything that he already doesn't know. God knows the devil accuses us day and night, but God knows all of our sins. And he yet is able to justify through the blood of Jesus and through the resurrection of the dead that he rose from the dead. He's able to forgive us of our sins.
And look at that beautiful statement. Where is God? Where did the devil, I'm sorry, where's the devil? He stands, according to Revelation, he stands accusing us before God the Father, day and night. Paul just told us where Jesus is. Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. You know what interceding for us is? Praying for us. Here is the devil right now, standing before the Father, accusing you of your sin. And here is Jesus standing in your defense. For everything that the devil has to say, Jesus Christ has a response. For everything that Tertullus had to say, Paul had a response. For everything that the devil is saying about you and us right now before the Father, Jesus has a response. And if Paul's response was amazing against Tertullus, man, I wish I could hear Jesus' responses to the devil. Because he's saying, yeah, yeah, he ain't wrong. They're guilty. But I've also, I paid for their penalty. So they don't deserve, they don't need to be punished because I took their punishment for them. He is interceding for us right now. That is how much Jesus loves you. He knows your sin better than your accuser does. He knows you better than your accuser does. And yet, there he stands, defending you before the Father, loving you. What an amazing God we serve. And see, this God is the one who is able to help us to strive to have a clear conscience before God himself and before men, just like Paul did. And by the way, I know, see, we talked about clear conscience, but there's one key word that I want us to end with, and it's the idea that he said at the beginning of it, I strive to have. I always strive to have. The word strive means to struggle, means to wrestle. It means to practice. Guys, when you practice something, it's because you're not good at it and you want to get better. Practice, you can never be perfect, right? I mean, the best athletes, the best musicians, the best art, everybody still practices. You got to practice. He says, I strive to practice. So when he says I have a clear conscience, he doesn't mean I'm guiltless or I have, I have a clear conscience, like in the sense of I don't sin anymore, which by the way, there is some things in Christian circles of Christian perfectionism, which, or, which say that it is possible for you to get to a point where you don't even sin anymore. I know some big-time names who go around saying, listen, I live in such harmony and perfect relationship with the Father that I don't sin. I just, I don't, I don't even know the last time I sinned, okay? Well, the, pre, the reason why you don't remember the last time you sinned is because you're prideful, okay? That's why, all right? You're not feeling it. You don't see it because of pride. Pride has blinded you. I'm sorry, sir. Listen, it is impossible for a Christian to be sinless in this lifetime. But it is possible for a Christian to sin less the more they you know, turn towards God, the more the Holy Spirit has a hold of your heart, and the more the Word of God is anchored in you. And so when he says, I strive to have, and even the phrase to have means to maintain in the mind. So Paul is literally saying, I am always conscious of this. I am always trying to practice, trying to maintain in my mind, not so much a clear conscience, but what clears his conscience. The blood of Jesus is enough. He knows he's a sinner. He can be the chief of sinner and yet not 
wallow around like some pathetic loser. Why? Because he's confident that his Savior has forgiven him. That's what it is. And so I, I want to challenge you. Listen, you and I, if you're believing in Jesus Christ especially, but if you're not, you know what shame looks like. We all know what shame looks like. And I want to tell you what to do with shame. Surrender your shame to the name of Jesus. Because he is the only one that could wash that shame away and even remove regret. All right? Surrender your shame to the name of Jesus. Because, see, shame keeps us from doing things. How many times have you ever stopped to do something because, oh, no, I, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be embarrassed. Shame actually kept you from doing something. Well, see, here's the thing. The more we are encountering the love of God, there's going to come a time in which you, you may be tempted to do something, and you're like, no, I'll never do that. I don't want to do that. That, that would bring shame to me. I don't want to embarrass myself before God. I don't want to embarrass myself before anyone. I don't want to bring shame to, to God. So even that can help us. And when we do fall, when we do fall and, and we have that guilty conscience kicks in, let, let godly grief bring you closer to God. Okay? Listen, I want to be very clear. I want you to mourn your sin. Mourn it. I want you to feel that regret. Feel it. But then move towards your Savior. All right? I want you to grieve. But then turn to God so you can experience what gratitude looks like. That's an important thing for us to do. Listen, God sees your sin clearly, yet still desires to cleanse you and wash you from it. Okay? And you will struggle with these voices. This is why, again, God's spoken word still speaks, guys. What did Paul say through, uh, through uh, 2 Corinthians? He asked that sarcastic question, right, in Hebrews as well. Actually, that's the one I wanted to say in Hebrews. He says, the blood of Jesus is enough to cleanse our conscience, to remove regret, all right, and help us to live for the Lord without regret. All right? Your confidence needs to come from Christ. A clear conscience is one that is confident in what Christ has done for you. Because I'm telling you, when you sin and when you fail, because the more, the closer you get to God, actually the more sensitive you are to sin. Things that didn't bother you now will bother you if you're closer to God because of his holiness. And every time you do, your flesh and and the kingdom of darkness will like will get you like a like a a person holds a dog who's pooped in the house, right? You, you never seen that? You ever done that? Or where they take the face, you know, take the dog's face and shove it into the poop and say, no, no, don't do it, right? They want to shame the dog into behavior modification. That's what the enemy does. And that's what, your Im that's what the impure impulses of your conscience does. When we sin, it says, look at it. Look at your sin. Look at what you've done. No, you're not enough. You're messing up. You're no good. I'm here to tell you, every time you hear the voice say, look at your sin. Oh, I want you to look at it. But then I want you to hear the divine impulse of the Holy Spirit. Say, look at your Savior. Look at your sin. But now look at your Savior. Look at your Savior. Surrender your shame to the name of Jesus. And let him cleanse you of your sin. Cleanse your conscience remove regret so that you can live for the Lord with gratitude and joy like never 
before.